I'm Morgan. I'm Robin. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Bougie Behavior. We're here again. Yes, we are. What's up? Nothing much. Just grinding it out. <laughs> Did you see that tweet where someone was like, it's only black people that you ask what's what's up, and they're like nothing. Just <laughs> at the grocery store, it's like, bro, it sounds like you're doing something. Is That's that not really? nothing. Like when you're on the phone with people. Yeah, you're like, what's up? I'm like nothing. You or know, just like a text. Just running errands at the grocery store, picking up laundry. But I, mean, I feel like that could be nothing. In the yeah. To some people, because like I say nothing, and I could be like in the middle of like writing an essay, or just like I'm at work. Writing or yeah, no, that's what I'm saying though. Because, like, you're actually actually doing something, something. you're like, What's up? What you doing? Nothing, just why do we do writing an essay? Why do we do that? I don't know. I don't know. I guess we try to like downplay sometimes. You know how sometimes you try to like downplay what you're doing? I think that helps with not stressing yourself out, yeah, about what you might have (laughs) going on in your life, (laughs) honestly. That's probably true. That's probably yeah. true. So, I'm pretty sure you've heard this, Rob. Because yes. this is your fave person in the whole wide world. Zora Neale Hurston came out with a good, with a new book. She did. Is and it Barracoon? Barracoon? Yes, I think it's Barracoon. Barracoon. I think. Yes. And it contains interviews with the last living person on this earth who survived the transatlantic slave trade that's literally crazy like isn't that insane it is but also it just speaks to how important the work was that she was doing during her time period where she was writing and just exploring anthropology and just like really getting down into the nitty-gritty of who we were as a people um Mm -hmm. years ago and then also just the importance of oration and understanding that the oldest living relative, possibly in your family, the amount of knowledge that they have. Mm-hmm. And That's the so importance true. of that and the importance of tracing our roots and just being aware of folklore and right. all of that. Girl, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, no, but this fine. highlight on your nose. Oh, thanks. Do you like it? This is what I do some days when I feel like just giving myself a little extra boot. No, I was just I staring at you, <laughs> listening, Thanks. and I was like, "Damn, your highlight Thanks. on your nose is Anastasia sparkling." Hills. Yes, for Glow that. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, sorry. Excuse the digression. <laughs> well, no, no, that's true though, because she dedicated a lot of her work her to life, folklore yeah. and myth mm-hmm. of Black culture, and yeah, it's crazy because I was reading well. We'll go all into, like, the history of Zora Mm -hmm. because this really goes... Well, the fact that we've even found this material that Mm -hmm. she wrote years ago and it's just now being published... It's very important work. Right. And it's, like, for a long time, Zora's work kind of got... It wasn't respected. And then it kind of got lost because people just weren't... Didn't appreciate it and thought it was kind of primitive, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it kind of got lost and it wasn't until Alice Walker actually mm-hmm. was looking for her grave site 
and it kind of like like reconjured up this interest in her work and I was like telling you that I was reading this book Mm -hmm. by Alice um in search of our mother's garden Mm -hmm. but she has two chapters in this book dedicated to Zora dedicated to Zora yeah and it was one was just called Zora Neale Hurston a cautionary tale and then the second chapter was looking for Zora so the first chapter where she talks about a cautionary tale and Mm -hmm. a partisan view is like talking about um when she well Alice she was about to write like write something on voodoo on southern Mm -hmm. voodoo but she didn't like any of the sources that she was finding and most of them were like by white male historians that didn't really have any appreciation or Mm -hmm. understanding of the cultural practice of voodoo Mm -hmm. so it was all kind of like written in condescension and just like looking down on the practices and Alice didn't really like respond to that material and she didn't even want to use it because she didn't feel like she could trust that point of view um and it wasn't until she found works by Zora Neale Hurston that she was like oh you know this is someone who's writing about you know this cultural practice with Mm -hmm. reverence and with respect Mm -hmm. and not as if it's some like foreign distinct primitive form of expression and so that was really important for her and it really resonated with her and that's kind of what led her on this journey because she did some more research on Zora and she found out that she died penniless and sick and, and that, alone honestly it's really sad no it really and is it really speaks to the importance of not even knowing our ancestors but just like really understanding and appreciating the black creatives and artists that are not even in our family and that are they are here like in spirit because literally she's still here and just the fact that Alice Walker had the ability to go back and do the research is something that unfortunately an academic has to do sometimes in order for people to understand the importance of people's work and Mm -hmm. that's a privileged space to be able to go back and look at documents because normal people don't have that access and it's so funny because you in the book she talks about so in the second chapter looking for Zora it's basically the whole chapter is telling the story about how she um found out that Zora died um in Florida where she was from close to where she was from she actually I feel like she's buried in Eatonville she, I think that sounds somewhere, about or right. somewhere close. I can't she died remember. She Fort Pierce, but yeah. it sounds. I think she, she her gravesite. I'm not 100 percent sure. I don't think it's it in Eatonville actually. But Alice found it, and it was funny because when she was looking for it, she actually found this woman named Charlotte, who was this white woman who was actually mm-hmm. writing like her PhD dissertation or something on Zora Neale Hurston. So she, yeah, so she found this kind of companion to, like, go on this journey with her. And so she went back to Eatonville, you know, talked to Zora's, like, old neighbors. And there were people that were still alive that knew her. And so she kind of, like, talked to them to try to figure out, like, you know, who was the last person to see her and talk to her. And then she ended up going down to the small town where Zora was last placed and Someone in Eatonville told her that she was in kind of like this nursing home, but then when she got down there, Mm -hmm. she found out that wasn't true Mm -hmm. or something like that. And she talked to some older, um, this older man, this older woman who lived on the street where Zora used to live. Mm -hmm. 
and so it was just like this kind of like this discovery kind of like this um scavenger hunt to find out where Zora was buried and then eventually she did find the plot like the area where she was buried but there was no marker on the grave site so it was funny because her and Charlotte went and they started like they went to the area where Zora was buried and Mm -hmm. someone told Alice that like her grave was kind of like in the center in between the gate and like the back of the cemetery or something like that so they were trying to like placed it out by looking so sad it was crazy but like even so the woman that told them where it was actually wrote with them there Mm -hmm. but she didn't walk in the grass because the grass was so high it was like nobody was taking care of the land or anything but there were snakes in there so alice and i think both her and charlotte walked through even though they knew there were snakes in there and they were yelling out zora's name like you know you know, like, are you out here? You know, trying to speak with her. Mm-hmm. And then they actually found, um, she said, I'm only going to call your name, like, two more times. Mm-hmm. And she called Zora one more time, and then, like, her foot kind of sunk in, like, this grave site. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where she figured that it was. So she went back, bought a headstone, and then put the headstone on there. That's important work. Like, yeah, no. It's really important. And that literally just makes me really kind of think back to when I was in ninth grade and I thought I was going to be an anthropologist. <laughs> yes, for you. I really did. I wanted to be an anthropologist. Um, like Zora. Yeah. Like, I was, that was, I don't want to call it a phase because I definitely always, since I was very young, I've been in tune with my spirituality and just, like, understanding my emotions. Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel like that's a part of the work of being anthropologist is just really feeling the spirit of your ancestors that leads you and guides you and I really used to be into that <laughs> so and that also deals with black religion kind of mm-hmm. in a way too but that was definitely something I thought I was going to do I read their eyes for watching God and I have known about Zora since I was a child so I thought that I wanted to go down that path and I think being a writer also is a part of answering to what I thought yeah. Zora is someone I really hold. I feel like if you grew up in Orlando and you were a little black girl, you know who Zora is because you yeah. went to Zora and Elhurst yes. Festival. We used to go so We used to much. go all the I time. I loved it. I actually want to go back. I heard it's not it's as not good as thing. it used to be, but I would definitely go back Yeah, in my adulthood. I want to go back. I think my mom went this year, actually. Because they crazy. always have celebrity concerts now. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice. I mean, yeah, they have like little old school... Yeah, um, people. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Frankie Beverly Frankie and Maze. Um, my mom loves her from Frankie so Beverly and Maze. Oh like, my gosh, it's people like that that they have at Zora yeah, Festival yeah, now. that makes sense though, because that's the type and they of have like boots and vendors still. Mm-hmm. But my my mom was saying a lot of them have really similar things, but it's always like that at Black Festival. Yeah, anyway, yeah, like everybody always has. Even up here in New like, York, when you similar things. walk down, like, the street fairs and stuff, like, mm-hmm. you'll see multiple people Definitely. selling sunglasses, and I feel like that's just, like, typical, but it's funny that you mentioned Their Eyes Are Watching God, because I have never read that book before, and I really want to read it, because you oh, said it was sure. really good. I need to reread. I read it when I was in high school. See, I, like, for you, with Zora, for me, Toni Morrison was, like, okay. my, like... See, I read Beloved when I was in high school. 
let's, or God let's save the child. Let's circle back to Zora because like a lot of people <clears throat> think she's from Eatonville. She's not originally from Eatonville. She yeah, was she born was in Matasoga, Alabama. Yeah, I actually read that and today. I, like, I read yeah. that today as well. Um, and that was January 7, 1891. And just for context, our university family was created in 1887. So when I saw 1891, I was just like, that's a really long time ago. But historically, HBCUs were being created around that time. So that means that her youth was spent in complete blackness from the very beginning. Because Eatonville, which was the city she grew up in, was the first black, basically, like, emancipated city in the whole country. Yeah. And that's significant because can you imagine growing up knowing that and knowing that the entire city that you live in is black-owned, like, your post office, all of those things, you know that that's all black. And I can't imagine living in, in that type of city because it's just like you go everywhere and you see people who look like you. And that's normal. Dang, that's crazy because that's how it is in Atlanta. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, it's just hella black people in Atlanta. And so you kind of have that mindset of... We can get, we get by on can, our own. Yeah, we like, can get by on our own. We don't like, need anything. Yeah, we have like a black mayor. We've always, like the state of Georgia itself is yeah, really white. Black. But it's, when you... Oh, okay. Atlanta is Atlanta black. is black. Okay. Like, it's kind of like Eatonville was very black, but then outside you have like racist Florida. You know, like, so that's how Atlanta is for like growing up there. Like, everybody was black. And so you I would can't. go to like really black Chick Fil A's and experience <laughs> like that. I I think I would have really enjoyed it because yeah, I can't imagine living like that during the early 1900s when it was already extremely racist. So your town was just like your safe haven. Yeah, like you didn't have to be scared of like walking down the street and doing certain things, right? Because you knew you were gonna be okay. And I guess that even like. For Zora, that upbringing really mm-hmm. influenced her work, it did, it which did. is why a lot of people kind of weren't feeling her, but <laughs> we'll talk about that. No, in a it did. It influenced <laughs> her work. And so during her time um, when she was young, she attended school, I believe, up until she was 13 years old. Um, mm-hmm. When she was 16, she joined a thea- theatrical company and she ended up moving to New York City. And she actually happened to move to New York City during the Harlem Renaissance, which is pretty interesting because there were a lot of folks up here during that time period, including Langston Hughes. Um, and while she was here, she attended Howard. Yeah, she moved to D.C. after the Harlem Renaissance. From 1921 to 1925, she attended Howard. Um, and then she won a scholarship to Bernard, so she came back. Um... She studied anthropology under one of the top anthropologists at that time. His name was Franz Boas. Um, she graduated from Bernard in 1928, and for two years she pursued her graduate studies degree at Columbia University. And afterwards, she started conducting stories of blacks in the rural South. And then she started writing books and just being a creative. In 1930, her and Langston Hughes worked on a play which was never finished. It was called Mule Bone. 1934, she wrote a book and published it, Jonas Gordvine. 
that was well received. 1935, Mules and Men, which is, was a very popular book. 1937 was when she published Their Eyes Were Watching God. 1938, Tell My Horse. 1939, Moses, Man of the Mountain. In 1942, she published her autobiography that a lot of people know, Dust Tracks on the Road. And I actually did not know that at one point in her life, she was a part of the faculty at North Carolina Central University. And while she was in D.C., she was also a staffer at the Library of Congress. Definitely didn't know that either. Yes, sir. So she's had a lot happen. Yeah, she has. And it's, like, crazy because she was one of, definitely one of the um, most influential involved writers of the Harlem Renaissance. She is. And she coined a term which I found was, actually, which... I first read about in Alice Walker's book, but then I did some more research and I thought it was really crazy because I feel like we're kind of reliving a time. We always do. And so the fact that she was involved in the Harlem Renaissance and she and her and Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman were um, part of the Niggerati. And that's what Zora called their group, their literati group. And they even had, like, a house. I love that she created that name. And she called herself the queen of the Nicarati. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> like, she was... Can we use that? <laughs> she literally called herself the queen of the Nicarati. So their whole... So, first of all... Sounds like an interesting dynamic. It is. And it. I feel like this is a very interesting part of history. Um, Do you think it's happening again right now, though? So, I'll get into that. Okay, so I'll... That literally made me think of that. Because we are dealing with a sort of yeah. black cultural yeah, and creative like and artistic and all these and literally yeah. that didn't exist at a time. It's, this is definitely a high point in black expression, and I hope that it continues um, longer and never stops. And I feel like we are kind of in a place now where we understand that ownership. Um, of our the way that we distribute mm-hmm. and our ideas and our work and our creativity is the way to kind of keep that momentum mm-hmm. going, um, which was kind of ironic for the Nigarati because they ironically called themselves that because one they wanted to be very provocative mm-hmm. because their whole thing was they were trying to express blackness in the way that they knew it, which was okay. real, and it wasn't kind of kowtowing to respectability politics. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that we're talking about this on our show, which is called Bougie Behavior, yeah. and we're talking about the Nicarati, which was actually, which their whole mission was to kind of counter the whole black bourgeoisie so scene. And I thought yeah. that was funny. Um, I love that. But yeah, they just kind of want, they kind of wanted to be anti-black bourgeoisie, which at the time, W.E.B. Du Bois was yeah. the voice of the black bourgeoisie. I was reading an article <laughs> today called, uh, it was an old article from Young Root, and it was, it was titled, Why Does Richard Wright Hate William Richard Wright? Oh, and yeah. I want to say, who wrote that? Henry Louis Gates, I want to say he wrote that. Oh, yeah. Group. I was rereading parts of it today. So that's a lot. Yeah, unpack. no. So he, so I kind of want to like, I want to give a condensed version in a nutshell, mm-hmm. just the so people that was going on. The yeah, so people can have like a context of exactly what Zora Neale Hurston was going up against, mm-hmm. and kind of what led her to the lights 
that she ended up living when she passed. Mm -hmm. Um, But she was very much, um, her and her group were very much um, provocateurs, and they didn't want to kind of ascribe to these uh, bourgeoisie ways of living. Um, And that's one of the, like, biggest critiques, especially from Richard Wright. Um, And some people would say that his critique of her actually kind of was the tipping point to her. Why she ended up living. Yeah, to her dissension, like, within the literary world. Because, you know, like, after a while, they stopped making, they stopped printing Their Eyes Were Watching God. Like, they weren't even making that novel anymore. Like, her work literally disappeared. So he basically blackballed her? Um, no, not him himself, but I feel like he kind of started that anti-Zora narrative Mm -hmm. and how black people should express themselves. Because Mm -hmm. I've never read Their Eyes Are Watching God, and you have, so Mm -hmm. you know this, but she doesn't shy away from Southern dialect. No. And so... That's why the book was actually not able to come out for so long, their group. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't like that she wanted the book to only be the man speaking in his own like natural right. dialect. And I I was reading about that and I was just like, that's crazy because it connects in so many other ways. Right. In terms of censoring how we talk. How we talk how and we how we express ourselves. And they didn't like that. So like mm-hmm. W. E. B. Du Bois and people like him kind of wanted to and I mean, we're talking about just contrasting ideals of mm-hmm. how black people could gain equality. And we, we're still having these conversations today. Yeah, we are. Like, literally, almost 100 years later, we're kind of still having We're conversations. We are still maneuvering in ways that some other economic groups can't really relate to. Yeah. And the same way, like, and now we have platforms like Twitter and mm-hmm. social media and Facebook And so people also, and YouTube, so people can create content. So we're constantly having these conversations. But even within, like, the black writing and journalistic communities that we have today, which is very reminiscent of the Harlem Renaissance, because the Niggerati and people like Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, and Wallace Thurman, they actually published, you know, Mm -hmm. um... They well, they tried to do fire, which was supposed to be kind of like, like a little zine kind of. It was supposed to be a magazine, and it was kind of supposed to be their critique of like black culture at the time. And they kind of didn't want to separate literature from black culture. So did they want it to be like the opposite of what Crisis magazine used to be? Like? Yeah, the opposite. So yeah, you had Du Bois over at the Crisis, and then you had like Wallace Thurman, mm-hmm. and he wanted to do fire when they didn't have and they. They funded it themselves, mm-hmm. so they didn't have enough money, and they only published one issue. Okay. Yeah, but then they had another one after that. I think it was called Harlem. Um, yeah, which was That's published cool. in 1928. So when did they... Yeah, they published Fire in 1927, and there wasn't, like, a warm reception to it. People weren't really feeling it like that. Wasn't. Because it wasn't the narrative that people was... Yeah, people thought that we were supposed to, very much in this time, black people thought that the more respectable we were, the more white people would be accepting of us if we could just prove that we... That sounds like some Booker T. Washington stuff. Yeah, and you know what? 
That's funny because I feel like him and W.E.B. Du Bois had some interesting kind of like intellectual differences they between the two did. of them. And it's funny because, like I said, these like these the these dynamics still, still exist today. Like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and that's the only way that you'll be able to succeed. Like a lot of black like elders still feel that way. Mm-hmm. And the respectability politics that. Booker T. Washington, and I will even say to an extent, some of W.E.B. Du Bois, like, things that he was coming up with in terms of presence and, like, the Talented Tenth and things like that, a lot of that still exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you thought, think about, like, you know, HBCUs and certain HBCUs, you know, that are considered, like, Ivy HBCUs, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's, and then you have, like, Jack and Jill, and then you have, like, all these segments of bougie black culture mm-hmm. that I feel like a, like there are movies that kind of or even books that kind of talk about this but it's not a very much you know discussed or even known part of like black culture and society yeah, that really. there are people that actually live like not that really unless people actually are interested in learning more about it because I know I feel like in terms of like our white peers, I don't really think that they understand that. Yeah, no. They don't. But I mean, I don't really care if they understand it or not. But <laughs> it's, they don't, I don't think they'll get it. But I think it's interesting to think about a lot of the things that were going on during the Harlem Renaissance are like still current in here where they find their way back to millennia. Yeah. And I think that that's a great thing. I don't think it's a bad yeah, no, I think it's very interesting, actually, that we're kind of seeing ourselves in a similar space and time. And if we even recognize that, I feel like people recognize that, though. Like, when I you talk about, like, just the abundance of black art that's been able to, mm-hmm. you know, hit mainstream and that we're able to see and enjoy. Especially music. We're talking about music, we're talking about movies, we're talking about TV shows, like, books, like every medium that you can think of, even when you talk about, like, different online outlets, you know, we just have, like, the internet really has made it so that people can actually have a voice Mm -hmm. and create things in a way Mm -hmm. that, you know, even they didn't have. And I feel like it's pretty cool that they were able to do the things things, that they did and and make a name for themselves. It's actually really cool how... I learned, I actually went to his house that was, um, during the time of also Frederick Douglass, um, mm-hmm. Frenzy lives in, was in D.C., and me and my sister actually got a chance to go to, um, Frederick Douglass's house and Carter G. Woodson's house. Both of their homes are museums, and when I went to Carter G. Woodson's house, I learned that he was actually running, like, one of the first black organizations. The name escapes me, but I went to the African American Studies Conference, which is um, hosted at a different HBCU every year. I got a chance to go to one of those conferences like while I was at BAM. And so just like being in his home was crazy because that's where he ran the organization out of. Mm-hmm. And they have some of his manuscripts still there. Like they still have his desk there. And then we went to Frederick Douglass's house. And it's just like imagining all of these things happening prior to what we currently have going on is just really, I feel like it's very important for us to explore those things and to just even be aware of them. Because if not, how can we live in the present if we don't know 
what our ancestors and like what our biographers, anthropologists, and all of those people were actually accomplishing without computers and without the internet. Like they were out there in the field doing the work and like making a name for themselves based on the work that they were passionate about. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Because it's interesting that you say that, and this is kind of segueing to kind of a different Mm -hmm. topic, and it's a good way for us to intro into pop culture. But you were just saying that the fact that, you know, people 100 years ago, 50 years ago, were accomplishing all of these things Mm -hmm. and all of this adversity without the internet. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of makes me think about, you know, when we hear about, like, music stats of, you know, Nicki Minaj getting, mm. you know, more plays than, let's say, Aretha Franklin. I forget the exact record. I think that that's true. I want to say that's Yeah, true. no, it's I true, but I can't I remember. remember. Is it supposed to be was more... Was it streams or was it... Something like that. Records. Because I know that Nielsen is... They completely changed with online streaming. Yeah. Which I think is kind of crazy, but I mean, we're in the new age now. Um, hold on, the Nicki Minaj. That sounds about right, though. Oh, okay, so here it is. Nicki Minaj passes Aretha Franklin for most Billboard Hot 100 hits of any female artist. Okay, so you hear something like that, and you say for most Billboard Hot 100. So, for Billboard Hot 100... Like, what is, because what I'm basically trying to say is, for Aretha Franklin to have accomplished all of that without the internet back then, and then Nikki comes and she, like, now we have streaming, you know, we don't have to buy records Mm -hmm. anymore, we don't have to listen to the radio in in order to hear a song, Mm -hmm. we can literally just go on our phones and, And like, do whatever and play a song Mm -hmm. however many times we want to play it. And there's actually people collecting data on it. Yeah. Whereas, like, let's say back when Aretha Franklin was releasing music, you know, they would only know by how many records were sold, but you don't know how many times people play yeah. that record. Yeah. Or if you're just relegating it to, like, radio, there's only so many times, you know, yeah. a radio station would mm-hmm. play an Aretha Franklin and record. And how hard that was for them to even be black artists during yeah. that time. And Not... To- diminishing Nikki but I'm just like that makes that makes me think like what you were just saying earlier kind of makes me think about like like records like this being broken by new artists and like how I don't because I don't really know much about how music is how things can like trend and go well no I'm talking about like how they kind of measure things it's changed so much because I feel like it used to be radio but it's not just radio. It's not just radio. Exactly. So, like, I don't even know, but I'm just saying, like... They definitely added streams. Yeah. And I thought that was crazy, but it's... I guess that's what they have to do now. No, yeah. It's... I guess it's... Maybe they were just having issues. But I definitely see the segue that you were doing because I think that... that's That's definitely a common thing that I feel like our elders' generation is doesn't understand about our generation they're constantly saying that we don't know our history and that we need to really reach back and try to understand it better so that we can move forward and be more of a unit and have more unity whereas historically there were always cliques and there were always 
little groups of people that agreed with each other, and then there were groups of people that didn't agree with those groups of people. And that has just created what we're still currently dealing with. We have our black writers, we have our black journalists, we have our black whatever. Like, it's still groups and clusters of people. It's always been like that. And I think historically, we don't give ourselves enough credit for that. Like, there's always going to be people that don't agree with other people. Like, and even yeah. with our generation now, like, I sometimes have conversations with my grandparents about that in terms of, like, where's the black leadership? And I constantly am telling them we have black leaders, but they don't, they're not Martin Luther King. They're not Malcolm X. Like, that's, that's not how our generation operates anymore. Yeah. Like, it's completely different. And it honestly just leads back to understanding that every generation is not going to be the same. Like, it's just not going to be the same. Yeah, that's true. I was actually segueing though, into our pop culture things. So much has been happening. <laughs> oh I know. Gosh. So we're going to challenge ourselves. Yes, we're going to do a fire rapid challenge. We're doing fire rapid pop culture things. Topics, discussions. Mm-hmm. So much just that was, happened. Honestly, that was such, so great. I feel so happy that we talked about Adele. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm yes. so happy for you. And since her new book came out, I was like, oh, this is the perfect no, time. Your sister already has it. I'm so annoyed at her. She I should have pre-ordered she mine. She literally texted me like on Monday oh and God. was like, I pre-ordered the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, wow, okay. Great. Good for you. And then she posted it on Instagram. I honestly should have pre-ordered. I should have, too. My friend actually went and bought the book from down the street by my office. I feel like, yeah, yeah I could have gone to, I can go to um, it's probably at, um, a Barnes & Noble. It's probably at Housing Bookstore or whatever that's called. First topic on the list? Is dear, dear white people? White people. Honestly... Still not done, but loving this season. Um, I am really loving the juxtaposition of Coco's character this season. And I also love Joe's character this season. Um, I like that we're really diving into black femininity and black womanhood in numerous episodes. Um, And we're not just focusing on everyone in an episode having conversations with each other and then just like the issues and like the blackface party being the premise of the entire season. I don't feel like that's happening again. I feel yeah. like everyone's getting a time Because you to said themselves. you think that the second season's better than the first season. I do. I think and so. see I I don't know. I really like the first season. I feel like the first season was just like more cohesive because it was just focusing on one the thing black like the blackface party. party. Um, but I did like this season because you did learn more about the characters as people and not basically as, like, their experience mm-hmm. dealing with racism. Yeah. It was more so, I mean, more with Reggie's character, you are kind of dealing with that, but mm-hmm. that wasn't, like, his... I actually kind of liked his episode. I liked his episode, Joel's episode, Coco's episode. Those were my favorite episodes. I actually, I did really like this season, though. And that you when you came in, I was watching rewatching that hotel episode, episode was so funny. because it was so funny. He got us, and there were so many signs, but I didn't see them until we just watched, and I saw them. I loved Coco's 
conversation, well, the episode dealing with an abortion. And I really that was, was scared episode. that she actually didn't and she had the child. And I'm, that I That girl was so cute. <laughs> she was. With her little bob. But I was really happy when she decided to go through with it yeah. and continue striving to achieve her goals. Yeah. She's really great. Second topic, Met Gala. Who came and slayed and who needed to stay home? <laughs> hmm. Let's think about that. I liked everyone's dress except um, I was not a big fan of SZA's dress. Mm-hmm. I was not a big fan of... Mindy Kaling's dress. Yeah, no, it looked like it needed to be steamed again. This um, praise dance dress oh, Carrie right. was rocking. That combined with the fro, I don't know. I like the fro. Did you see the memes? No. Of her as a praise dancer. I'm <laughs> dead. And I died because I retweeted one. That was too much. I wasn't a fan of Haley Baldwin's fit or Katy Perry's. I liked Kendall Jenner's off-white jumpsuit. I did not. A lot of people said it was very basic. It was. I actually liked it. I wish she would have stayed home. And did you know that Marnie, Beyonce's stylist, styled her? It matters not. And I feel like she could have gone for something more dramatic. I do feel that way only because... It's the Met Gala. It was the Met Gala and I feel like... That's why Rihanna always slays because mm-hmm. I feel like she always she gets it. She gets it. The whole point her of it. Her stylist is very on point though. Mel Ottenberg and Eliza, her other consultant that also works with all of her brands, they're they all know her and they get it. Oh yeah, no, and I, I feel like it's supposed to be like an event. It's a performative mm-hmm. event with a theme. Mm-hmm. It's like going to a costume party for Halloween and like dressing in all black or something. You know, like it's just like come on. Just and who else looked really nice? I like Zendaya's outfit. It was and her cute. Wig. I thought it was very cute. Together. It was cute. I really wish that Beyonce would have gone only because I feel like she always kills that aesthetic, the theme, and I feel like whatever she wore would have been real cute. Mm-hmm. But she did not come. I like Luna's cape that she had on. Goodbye. I really liked it. <laughs> and Janelle Monet's look was very nice as well. <laughs> That's with the hat. I feel like she was the only one in Sunday's Best. Now, Janelle? I, yes, because she had this hat, and I really wish it was more you extravagant. Did you like Leticia's outfit? I thought that was really cute. Uh, this is her first Met Gala. I feel like it was nice. It was nice, but it wasn't one of my faves. What about Tess Thompson? I didn't see her outfit. Yeah, she had like a black outfit on. It was cute. Speaking of Tessa, I saw her walking. <laughs> when I was coming home from work yesterday, mm-hmm. I saw her sitting at this did bench. Did you say hey, girl? I said hi. You did? Yes. Did she respond? <laughs> she did. She just kind of waved and said hi. You know, but she was on the phone. So oh. I was like, okay, she's busy. But I didn't I wouldn't start. I didn't want to start walking up to her or anything. Oh. I just literally kept walking. And I said hi. And then she said, you know, hi. I don't think it, and it was hella people around because she was like in front of this coffee shop. Was? I don't think they knew. I cannot. And she was just sitting there on the phone. And I guess she was going somewhere because her face was beat and she hair slicked back. She was going somewhere. She's so pretty. Yeah, no. It was so funny. That's nice. Um, third topic. We went over two minutes, but whatever. Savage Fenty. Yes, Savage Fenty. Not a fan. I mean, I've been hearing a lot of shade about Savage Fenty. Um, on Twitter, I've been seeing people say that they don't think it's sexy enough. 
Um, in the office, I've heard that it looks like it's Victoria's Secret page because one of my editors actually went to the press little junket or whatever and like saw stuff. Yeah. And I I knew from the pictures that she was posting. The only picture that I liked was that all black of her standing. That in she bustier. yeah no that's really cute. But mm-hmm. everything else I just wasn't. You don't like the bustier slash corset of her leaning down. That picture? I don't really, I thought I it, it wasn't, I don't know, it, I don't, I didn't like that either. The only thing I liked was the black thing. And then I saw, you know, a lot of people on Twitter were saying like, oh, it's very inclusive of all body types. And I thought, but I, is it really? I thought it, it was true from, you know, optics wise when you go on the website. But mm-hmm. as we both know, we were talking to some of our friends and they yeah. were saying that actually, it's not, it's not, the ranges don't go as high as they were anticipating mm-hmm. because we have two. some big titty friends. Yeah. Double and, D is not big enough. Yeah, double D, they're like in the G's and the H's mm-hmm. and they were like, bruh, it's not going to work for me. So I was like really feeling for them because yeah. they were saying, one, how expensive big bras are. Yeah, I know because my sister literally spends a lot when she needs a good bra. Right. No, like from 60 to $150 for one bra. When Sid said that, I was just like, When she said she spent $400 on three bras, I died. And you know I also died because the last bra that I received was nothing because I got it out of a fashion club. (laughs) So I can't imagine spending... Spending that much money on bras. And they're saying how, like, they're not, like, nice looking, like... So, yeah, we need some better bras and, you know, that are nice and comfortable and efficient Mm -hmm. and also appealing to the eye. And affordable. Exactly. Is that possible? Let's get it popping. I don't know if that's possible. It is. (laughs) Next topic. (laughs) No, it is. R. Kelly and XXX Temptation. I just figured out how to say it. How do you say it? I don't say it. Because ah! I don't want to just be saying it. I hate you. <laughs> oh my God. I don't say it. I don't know how to say it. But both of them are no longer going to be in Spotify's curated playlist. And honestly, I'm never feeling that because. Make them clap. No, yeah. Like, they don't need to be in the playlist. And I kept seeing X Temptation in Spotify's Rap Caviar playlist for so long. Literally, his song has been in it for months. My thing is the fact that that he's suing Spotify and he's saying things like, if you're going to take me off, you need to take all these other artists off. And then you have that list of people. The list of people. Sir, this isn't about them. No, it's not. This is about you. Like, I had to stop myself from reading the um, court proceedings when some of those articles were coming out at the end of last year because it was too much. I didn't even read. It was all types of craziness going on. I didn't even read. I didn't even give it any attention. Um, R. Kelly, it's about time that somebody does something because this man is out here just wilding. Doing whatever he wants to do, and he's been doing whatever he wants to do for so long. And these stories, like, how do you even read these stories these people these women are saying and not be like this is very strange even the video of and the young lady they people said they saw someone yeah some i saw I it didn't watch it somebody was like wave and then she looked and she was like and that's all i'm gonna say that like, buzzfeed story from last year yes is what had me that had me dead. dying i, I was, literally stopped i stopped listening
listening to him a couple years ago. Like I, five yeah, years I stopped ago. listening to him five a while ago. I like turned to next song. Yeah, my mom like stopped going to his concerts a long time ago because she was like it was him and she just refused to go. And like, yeah, I remember that stuff that and that episode of the Boondocks. <laughs> Is what took me out. But honestly. the thing about it is, the thing about it is, was it not real? No, yes, it was because listen, um, Soul Train was. Awards literally about three years ago, he was on there passing out oh, plates of chicken, performing. I remember that. I remember his he new was hit. Singing. He was singing. I he was singing, that. and he had like this what black cookout. I don't remember because I never listened to it except for that one time on the Soul Train Awards, which was actually a really good Soul Train Awards because they were honoring Babyface and he had hit after hit after hit. I remember that. And so everybody was up there singing these hits. Yes. And then R. Kelly got his pedophile self up on stage and had basically a cookout, passing out food. Yes. Bro, why don't I remember? They were, he was passing out food, literally. Why did they have him at the show? It lit, I was like, this looks just like that Boondocks episode. I am literally dead. <laughs> and that people episode, were up dancing. I need to go home and watch the Boondocks tonight because that was my show, man. No, seriously, I was like, I actually need to watch that again. I actually he just did said it. that. He did it and they weren't lying. Exactly. Next topic. Oh, Ben. Oh, Ken. Oh, um, so, you guys, one of my fave festivals, which I attended, I'm just kidding, <laughs> no, I went to Cannes, what, like, two years ago? It's actually, like, a really great festival, um, it's going would you on, go back? I would definitely go back, and it's crazy because I was reading articles on Hollywood Reporter today, and they were saying that this year's Cannes was actually not that great, um, mm, because okay. of, like, after the Harvey Weinstein, um, yeah. scandal. It's moving kind of slow. Um, it's moving slow. There's not a lot of um, properties being purchased. Okay. Um, so it's kind of like a slow selling season also. Um, and just like these festivals are normally like big party festivals, you know. And so with the entire kind of... Time's up period. Time's up, me too. And that this isn't to say blaming those movements. This is just saying, like, in this atmosphere that Hollywood is in right now, nobody wants to take any chances. So everything's just kind of shut down. Like, these major companies aren't having parties. You know, it's just not that type of uh, event anymore. And they said that about Sundance as well this year. Um, And I think it's just going to take time for the industry to just kind of figure out how... Because you can have fun without assault. Like, that's just strange to me that after all of this that's the biggest thing is oh my god is the me too movement kind of killing the whole vibe of these festivals if i see a headline saying that i'm going to die no i've seen it though i've Stop seen it. no I, I have this is stuff that's being discussed no, like people are why like is that a headline and it's just crazy because you, you can have fun without a soul but yeah you have to hold people accountable, accountable. And it's just crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, but it's gonna take time for people to figure out how to quote unquote have fun without making or creating or encouraging environments of of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's gonna take a while for that to happen because <laughs> people clearly have no self control. They can't keep their hands to themselves. Exactly. So anyway, um, but. Two things that's happening. People are really excited about 355, which is the new movie with Miss Lupita in it and Jessica Chastain. And, ooh, what's 
Cotillard, I can't remember her name, but she's like a super gorgeous, super talented actress. Um, anyway, uh, it's a spy movie. So that's actually the most exciting film that everyone's talking about mm -hmm. at Cannes, and they think that's actually what's going to be like the kind of popular uh, buy this year. Okay. Um, and speaking of fashion, because Miss Aja Naomi King was she there. Looks so good, and I'm so happy that she's there. Because yes. I mean, people need to know about her. There was actually I know. some really cute fashion. Um, I did a little roundup today. And Ava DuVernay she is actually great. on the jury she, this year. She is. She um, is. there's a lot of women on there. I feel like Kristen Kate Blanchett Stewart. is She's, and Kristen Stewart is um, on there too. Who's the president this year? Is it Kate Winslet? I don't want to say her. If oh it's no, her. it's not. Is it, it Kate must Blanchett? be Kate Blanchett. Yeah, Kate Blanchett. Um. Kristen Stewart's one of the judges. Her fit looked real cute. Who? Um, Kristen Stewart. She's been slaying this First weekend. of all, actually, when I went to Cannes, oh. I saw her, and she's actually a very stylish young woman. Well, I think she's a Chanel ambassador. She is. So, she was in Chanel all weekend. Bro, they just, she's very fashionable. I really like her style. She. She's definitely because she prefers indie over studio. Like she, oh. that like she's a whole indie darling. Like they love her, the whole indie community. Like they love her, and they always get her in these movies. Who else was there that was on my roundup? Oh, Ryan Coogler was there, and he gave um, he had a, a, a speech. Not a speech, for, but it was kind of like a panel masterclass. Okay. Um, and he actually sponsored some um, Black French students to go. That's awesome. And he said, you know, he was like, it's kind of weird, you I know, when you that. go to these things and you look out into the crowd and you don't see anyone who looks like you. So he paid mm -hmm. for these students to attend. I love that. So Just that was pretty cool. Ryan. I know. Gotta love Ryan, dog. Gotta love him. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so great that he did that, though. No, it's so true. No. Nice. Um, next topic. Yes. We're sucking at this two minutes, but... We almost had it. I know. Um, childish Gambino or not? <laughs> not or not. Because everyone's raving over this video. I didn't watch it because I want to, I think I might get a little triggered from some of the things that are in Yeah, it. no, I watched it not knowing any pretext going in. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what was going to happen. It needs a trigger warning. warning. Okay. Because that first I'm glad I gunshot it at work then. I was. Oh, I watched it at work, mm -hmm. and I was like, wow. My mouth was agape the entire time mm -hmm. because I was just like, wow, this is crazy. But I watched it a second time, mm -hmm. and it's true. You have to watch it twice because the first time, of course, you're just, like, looking at childish dancing, and it's, like, this bizarre. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, like, this bizarre thing because it's, like, not something that he would do. But, one, you really learn that he has rhythm. <laughs> so he actually, like, looks pretty decent doing the dance moves mm -hmm. so it's like this whole thing that you have to wrap your head around watching him and then you see like he's dancing with these kids mm -hmm. and then in the middle of all this he's like shooting people so it's it's weird see i don't know if i can watch but that. then the second time you like actually pay attention to what's going on in the background when he says like this is america mm -hmm. and it's like craziness just like chaos going in the background and you have like um a white horse which references a biblical text about um, him bringing wrath behind him, and mm -hmm. of course behind him is the police, mm -hmm. and so yeah, so it's kind of like this. Sounds like a interesting. It's a very video. symbolic video, and so there are just a few things which I pro I bet you everyone has seen on Twitter, 
uh, analyzing the messages the in critics, the music video. That's where the critics are. <laughs> But paid. some of them are really good. So someone tied the stance that he did when he shot the first person mm-hmm. to a uh, um, minstrel mm-hmm. drawing caricature, which yeah. I thought was interesting. An interesting take. And then the second one I saw was, you know, everyone's distracted by... Because like I said, the first time you watch it, you're like watching Donald dancing and like doing mm-hmm. all this stuff from black culture. And that's the point, because you're distracted by, like, everyone's distracted, like, what's going on? But then in the mm-hmm. background, like, you have all these people dying. Or it's kind of, like, valuing or putting in the front the black culture, but not what's happening to black people. There's, I feel like there's multiple ways that's you could look at it. Yeah, so then also we were talking about how, like, he's shooting these people, and then after the people are dead, like, there's no care for the bodies. Like, they're just, like, dragging them away. But then, like, there's so much care put into where he places the gun and he like when he gives the gun to whoever comes and gets it there's mm-hmm. like a towel in it or you know like a, mm-hmm. a cloth so that they can wrap the gun and the guns are just handled with much more care than the actual bodies That's so there's just like a lot but what really hit me was like in the end when child is just like dancing on these cars and he was just like get your get your money black man get your money um I thought that was interesting because I feel like that's something that a lot of black people are realizing now is like there's kind of just no saving this country at this point and it's like this is America like this is what's going on so it's just like you might as well just kind of get your money and <laughs> don't worry about that but live that's, your life live your life basically like live your life I can play this I game and play it better because like Donald's giving. Hollywood, the run, I'll run for his money right now. So he, yeah, he has a lot going on. He has a lot going on. And he's not being shy about speaking about certain issues. But then, of course, you also have these people who I also understand and somewhat agree with that critique Donald and say that... Um, Atlanta? Not Atlanta. Uh, well, I know there's been a lot of critique, and I feel the same way about the portrayal of black women on his show. I've been hearing about that. Um, especially this season. Um, but also the fact that some someone was saying, like, y'all always praising Childish, like, but most of his work is kind of, like, condescension or, or a disdain for black culture and ghetto yeah, shit. And, and they were like, honestly, he's he's making fun of y'all and y'all don't said, even know it. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of people say that, and I've been seeing a lot of people say that he's doing the trope of being the nerdy black guy. That yeah, that everyone hated in high school and middle school. Everyone made fun of them, but at the end of the day, he's still going to be able to make money because y'all are not realizing that he's riding this trope out and he's doing, pulling all these tricks about his sleeve to do what he wants to do to make money. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know about the trope. I'm not going to play into it because I I didn't I haven't been listening to Childish too 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 long. Like I do remember when we were in school and he started as an artist. Like, that's the only person that I remember, but now I'm taking him into Atlanta. I've seen most of season one. I'm getting into season two now. Mm-hmm. So, people have, that's the thing, people have time to grow. Yeah. So, I'm just giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yes, he is a black man. Yes, he's flawed. We're all flawed. So, regardless of if he is playing into a stereotype or playing into a trope, I think that it's still black art. Yeah. And no one's perfect. At so. the end of the day. And I feel like, yeah, like what you said about growth. We don't know exactly 
what level of self-awareness Childish was at mm-hmm. when he came into the game versus now. And just like everyone else on Twitter and in real life has gone through like major mental and, you know, changes, just like what we believe and how we view the world has changed so drastically in the past eight to ten years. You know, so it's just like yes. if you're talking about uh, someone who's been creating work for the past five eight, ten years, of course you're going to see a massive change in how they express themselves and what content they're talking about. It's a perfect segue into the last person that we're talking about. And someone also tweeted, like <laughs> you just said, perfect segue, childish is where Kanye wishes he was. <laughs> oh my god, where did people come up with these things? <laughs> what? I don't know. That's so sick. People Honestly. are actually very rude. So is that, are we canceling Kanye now? Is that what that is? I thought that was the general consensus. I said yeah. that I was not going to cancel Kanye because um, I do have hope. And like I said on Twitter, no one, and I mean no one, <laughs> makes me feel the way that I do when I listen to Kanye. Honestly, can I really agree with that? Because literally, he has gotten me through... A lot. The hardest times that I've ever experienced. And I'm not going to say that I'm canceling him based off of the fact that it's very hard for me to separate an artist from them. And that's a exactly. Individual. It's really and hard for me to do that. I'm not making excuses for him at all. Mm-mm. He is known for saying that slavery was a choice. I haven't watched any of those interviews, any of those things, solely off of the fact that when I feel ready, I'll do it. The Charlemagne interview, don't I, I didn't watch, watch it, it because I don't care for Charlemagne. First of all, it's two hours. I don't care for him. It's two hours. Like, what? And the then new singles, I'm not feeling I'm it. not feeling the new singles I'm either. I'm not feeling it. But this is how I feel about the whole situation. Like I said, nobody makes me feel the way that I feel when I listen to Kanye mm-hmm. music. I'm sorry. Is he a favorite love... rapper? Because he's my favorite rapper. He's my favorite rapper. And I, I will continue to say this. You know, like, I love Kendrick. I love J. Cole. I love Chance. I love all of them, but... I'm sorry, nobody ever makes me feel the way I, like, it's just like, Kanye makes you feel like you can do anything. And I feel like that's honestly where he's trying to come from and everything that he says and everything that he says, but I feel like he's very misguided. And His support system is not what it needs to be. And I don't even want, yeah, his support system, and he's not putting himself around real people. Like, you want to have real discussions about free thinking. You need to get around people who are not living this comfy lifestyle that you're accustomed to and the people around you that are, you know, are accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And I feel like everything that he said just really kind of showcases how disconnected he is with everything that's going on and how living in that world actually makes this. you less aware of what's going on in the world it's really sad honestly and it it is because i i feel like you know of course when you start living differently you start thinking differently Mm -hmm. and i totally understand what kanye's or what people say in general when they're like oh not all black people need to be democrats that's a distraction we can all agree that the government as a whole needs to be restructured, not just one yeah, party. Yeah, evil people on both sides. So we're not, that's not even, a, that's not even up for debate at this moment. Yeah. What's up for debate right now is that 
your words are empowering to a group of people who believe in the oppression of black and brown people. Like, th that's just the end of it. So we already had people like Janelle Monet come out and give her two pieces on it. We already had TMZ's band come out, give his two pieces on it, mm -hmm. and made very um, valid and critiques of, critiques of what he had to say. And I do feel like it's coming from a place of stupidity, to be honest. Like I said, when Kanye said he didn't read, I already knew it was over. When people say stuff like that, I'm just like, because how are you able, like, and that's why I feel like, I'm sorry, but I know I've had, I know Kanye's been kind of like off the rails for a long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, of course, everyone has their conspiracy theories and reasons and explanations. I have mine, but I won't share them. I'm just going to say that I know that he doesn't read and I can tell he doesn't read because of the very shallow things that he says and he makes them declarations as if they're these profound revolutionary liberating thoughts. And that whole VMA speech he gave where everybody was like, Kanye 2020 and vote him for president. You remember all that? I do. I listened to that speech and I was very extremely underwhelmed because I was like I'm on, I've been underwhelmed from so many things that he's had to say over like the past five years yes the past five I'm just and like I was just like yeah he'd be going on his rants and they're filled with gems and it's just like actually actually they're not, they're not. They're not. because a lot of the stuff that he's saying I'm just like you can read any any book and have those same thoughts like or not even read a book and have those thoughts or even be aware of, of past philosophies or ideologies or, you know, people's critiques or, you know, social, cultural critiques. There are so, there's so much that you can pull from Kanye, but you're choosing not to because you feel like you yourself like knows it all. I think so. And you know that's he doesn't, he feels like, because he's always on this thing of nobody's going to be able to tell me what to do. My thoughts are what is right for me. So ignorant. And so ignorant. Yeah, he's on this thing of, I don't want anyone to restrict me. Like how he says that Kim Kardashian is our generation's Marilyn Monroe, and how he's more he's going to be more powerful than Walt Disney and like Steve Jobs and all that. Remember the Slay interview when he was saying stuff like that? And I was just like, what? Yeah. And then he was talking, he was like bashing Nike during that interview as well, and it's just like, I mean, Nike said no for what you wanted to do, so you went to Adidas. And I mean, not gonna lie, he's killing it there. Yeah, but so what's the we problem? Still need to understand. I don't. Do you think he understands his level of influence over the youth? Because I don't think that he really. I don't knows. think he knows. They're obsessed with him. And I don't think people are as obsessed with him anymore. Generation Z, though. I don't know. I think they are. I feel like people used to be, but when he went on the when this he last went. this Saint this um Saint Pablo tour, mm -hmm. I feel like he lost a lot of people. And okay. then him coming back just now, he lost a lot of like horror fans. And mm -hmm. I feel like people are just more disappointed than anything else. I'm definitely disappointed. Because it's just like, how could you even say these things? Like, I just don't even understand. And it's just like, he's contradictory in so many different ways. And not even contradictory in the way that, oh, I contradicted myself from what mm -hmm. I spoke about two years ago. No, no I contradicted myself about what I said two minutes ago, or actually yesterday. You know, like, seriously, though, when he started tweeting again, 
Remember when I'm he first not, I started? I literally unfollowed him. When he first started tweeting, he actually wasn't saying crazy off the wall stuff. It was actually like, okay, okay, Kanye, you back? No, so, I know, because that's when I followed him, and then I unfollowed. No, when seriously. When he started saying when, dumb stuff. When he started tweeting, he was talking about you know having authority over your work and having ownership over your creativity, your that's ideas. That's what you were saying was good. Yes. Did and you he see w- when he started saying that you could steal ideas from people and turn and that to your own? That's what I'm talking about. Talking that was about? literally the very next like, day, Robin. That was literally on? the very next day. And then after, How? after all of these interviews, he tweeted Travis Gambino's video. Like, what is happening? I don't and know. And then he's tweeting screenshots from text messages with his friends like John Legend. And it, that was so tacky to me. Why are you doing this? Why? That was very L.A. That was very L.A. because you know why it was very L.A.? Because that's something Kim would do. Why are you posting when screenshots? That's something she would do because honestly, that's what she did to Taylor. I really love that She likes John to drop said, receipts. John said, because you're posting. And since you're posting, my yeah, my single comes out. <laughs> I'd be I the same John's way. <laughs> I would be the same way. Like, okay, well, since you're about to expose me, and you know he was John coming was to him, really as a, trying to check on him. And make but I'm sure you're there. You know, they're pretty much they're still friends. You know, they still hang yeah. out. Whatever. John was really concerned. No, he was. He was very concerned. Oh my god, I cannot. I, can't. <laughs> I just can't. Is he really my favorite rapper? Is he really? Yes. He is. Well, do you have a tweet for us today, Rob? Let's see what I can conjure. What is on here? This is a good volume. Alright, yep, this is a retweet from three years ago by an artist, Sue Zai. The blessed don't beef with the miserable. And, and that is all. That's like a great little moment. Yes, for that.